William Patrick Fife may be Canada's most brutal and prolific serial killer. The number of victims he's responsible for is unknown to this day. Yet this man, who viciously slaughtered many single women throughout Canada, left almost no clues behind. Today we explore what may be one of the most intelligent serial killers ever to terrorize North America. Welcome, welcome, welcome to this brand spanking new edition of Killing, Missing, Hidden. Unless you aren't listening to this episode near the beginning of February 2021, then it may smell a little musky. I'm your host, former genius criminal defense attorney and your best buddy, Brad. I hope you are all healthy, happy, and having all your dreams come true. All right, well, let's talk about some horrible, brutal murders. William Patrick Fife, a.k.a. the Handyman Killer, was remarkable in how unremarkable he was. Andre Bouchard, one of the lead investigators in his case, described Fife as a, quote, a very, very ordinary man, unquote. This allowed him to blend into the background of society for so long, and if it wasn't for one mistake... It's possible Fife would have never faced justice. He was born in 1955 in Toronto and had a fairly unremarkable childhood, but for a few events. First, his father left him when he was three. And at some point when he was still a toddler, he was sent to live with an aunt. In his early 20s, he had a bit of a criminal streak, getting arrested for breaking and entering, theft, abduction, and my favorite, pretending to perform a marriage legally. Fife also was suffering from a drug addiction during this time. At some point, he apparently got married, but the marriage didn't last long. Uh, It looks like most folks speculate it wasn't more than four years, but police apparently have clamped down on a lot of the history of Fife. It wasn't until around 1993 when he moved back in with his mother that Fife kind of put his life together, for lack of a better term. That's when he started working as a traveling handyman consistently. He worked for himself and was on the road consistently. And he apparently did good work. He was well thought of, but he he never really made a ton of money from his craft. Uh, He had friends. And his friends described him as a generous person who is full of community spirit. And I think, honestly, Wikipedia does the best job of capturing how ordinary this guy was. If you go look at his page, there's almost no information there. Which, for a serial killer, is kind of weird, right? I mean, serial killer Wikipedia entries are usually pretty robust. They have a lot of information, especially about the victims and childhood and all the interactions with the police. Five's page is a couple paragraphs and that's about it. So since we don't have a ton of information about this dude's life, we've got no choice but to just jump straight into the murders. 
It wasn't until the end of 1999 that Fife really began to dig the murder scene. But when he found he enjoyed it, he dove head first into it. And an asterisk kind of needs to go by that date because, as we'll learn, there's some murders he may be responsible for that happened years before. Now, Five Simo was a simple one that allowed him the maximum opportunity for victims at the minimum risk to himself. He would drive from house to house, knock at the door, and ask the homeowner if they needed any, you know, handyman-type work performed. Now, if the person who answered the door was female, and it appeared that she lived alone, then Fife did his murder thing. His first victim, which again is a, not as certain a term in this case as we can use in a normal case, but his first victim was Anna Yarnold of Senville, Montreal. It's a small community where people tend to own second homes and join yacht clubs and that sort of things. Anna was having kind of a bad day on October 14, 1999. She learned that her beloved dog had a tumor that needed to be removed. Her husband, whom she was separated from, and her daughter checked on her several times that day because she was just inconsolable. The next day, on October 15th, her husband went to check on her after she stopped answering her phone. After poking around the house a little bit, he found Anna face down in a flower bed just beyond a screened-in porch. When police arrived, they noticed that she had been beaten pretty severely with a heavy cement flower pot. She also had noticeable bruising around her neck and throat. The evidence suggested the attack began in Anna's bathroom, and it looked like she tried to run out of the back of her house before being caught and murdered. Police also found evidence of a robbery as her purse and wallet had been gone through. Two weeks later, another murder was committed. Monique Gardot of St. Agatha, Montreal, was found dead on October 29, 1999. Her co-workers became concerned when she didn't show up for work that day and reached out to her sister to check on her. Her sister drove out to visit Monique at her house and came along or came across a truly grisly scene. Monique had been stabbed approximately 55 times, choked, and suffered a sexual assault. There were no signs of forced entry and police couldn't find a murder weapon. But investigators did find one little clue that would prove to be extremely helpful down the road. A shoe print that was not Monique's, and a few small drops of blood that also did not come from Monique. Tests confirmed later that this blood came from a male, but they otherwise couldn't produce any useful information with it. It's believed that the blood came from the multiple stabs. When somebody goes into a frenzy like that, they typically end up cutting their own hands and wrists accidentally as they viciously stab and stab and stab. Now, three weeks later, we have yet another victim. This one is Teresa Shanahan, an accountant that was living in Laval, Quebec. She didn't arrive for work one day, and after spending most of the day trying to get in touch with her, her co-workers finally became concerned and asked the police to perform a welfare check. 
When the police arrived at Teresa's apartment, they noticed several days' worth of newspapers stacked up by her front door. Inside the apartment, police found another horrendous scene. Teresa had been sexually assaulted and severely beaten. She also had suffered 32 stab wounds. Several pieces of her jewelry had been taken, as well as an ATM card from which $1,000 had been withdrawn from her account. When the police went to check the ATM security footage, they couldn't see the perpetrator's face. But they could tell it was a man who was about 5 foot 10 with a beard. December 14, 1999 brought our next victim in this case. Mary Glenn of Montreal's West Island. She was found by her cleaning lady. And at the risk of sounding like a broken record, Mary was found beaten, choked, and stabbed. But the beating Mary received was particularly vicious. Once again, there's no signs of forced entry, but there was clearly a very, very vicious struggle. Uh, Mary did not give her assailant an easy time. Police found clumps of her hair throughout the house, suggesting that she was able to get away and was only caught when the perpetrator grabbed onto her hair. Frankly, the entire house looked like something you would see after a WWE match. The fight ended in the living room where Mary suffered her final beating, and it was brutal enough that her assailant was so bloodied by the fight, police found that he tried to wash up while he was in Mary's house. He had washed his hands and possibly his shirt there in the sink, he left bloodied footprints throughout the house. And despite all of this, there were basically no clues left behind except a solitary fingerprint on the outside of the front door. The fingerprint was actually in Canada's criminal database. And it quickly identified William Patrick Fife as the owner of the fingerprint. Now again, the fingerprint, it's outside the house. It's not covered in blood or anything like that, so it's not a smoking gun piece of evidence, but it gave investigators a target to go after. But police soon learned this wasn't a great target. Fife didn't have an address. He didn't work for anyone. He basically didn't exist in any meaningful form of paper or other such records law enforcement relied upon. So how are they going to find this man? A pretty heated debate began among investigators on the best way to approach this situation. Some wanted to immediately publicize the information and see if the public could kind of push Fife into the spotlight for the police. The others argued that this would create too great a risk that Fife would know he was a wanted man and he would try to flee. So the detectives were unable to reach a solution. They took it to the brass and the local politicians, and ultimately the decision was made to give the police a very limited amount of time to try to find Fife on their own. But if they couldn't do it, his information would be released to the media. The plan was put into action, and police made exactly zero progress in finding Fife on their own. So, the decision was made to leak the information on Fife to the media. 
and it started a firestorm. But it also proved to be extremely helpful, as police received a call from Fife's ex-girlfriend, who told police exactly where Fife was living, which was in an old farmhouse on his mother's property. Ex-girlfriends will always get you, won't they? Now, police were able to quickly locate the farmhouse. And again, because the evidence they had was not slam-dunk sort of evidence, they decided to conduct 24-7 surveillance on Fife to see if he would lead them to any more evidence. Interestingly, after police began their intense surveillance on Fife, they noticed that rather than him running from the publicity, he actually kind of went out of his way to buy every newspaper he could that featured him in some way. Now, this intense spy work police had developed only lasted three days. On the third day, Fife stopped at a local church and went around back to where the donation bin was. And he donated three pairs of women's running shoes that had blood on them. After he made this donation, police followed him to a local truck stop where he stopped. Police got out, made an arrest. It was peaceful and calm. And you want to know Fife's response to being arrested? He said, quote, why don't you shoot me now? Now, once he got to the station, Fife became uncooperative. Some may even say extremely hostile. He insisted the police had nothing. He would stop talking in the middle of interviews. He would call his lawyer to ask questions. And he would even act childishly, like pulling the wires out of the cameras in the interrogation rooms. While Fife was being interrogated, other investigators were examining the shoes that they had recovered from the donation bin. The red spots on them were confirmed to be human blood, and this gave police enough information or enough evidence to allow them to obtain a search warrant so they could poke around his farmhouse and his mother's house. While they were doing this, they came across more women's clothing that had traces of blood, uh, at least some of which could be identified as belonging to Anna and Mary. They found a pair of shoes Fife owned that matched the tracks left outside Monique's house. A ring in Fife's mother's home was identified as belonging to Teresa. The blood stains that were found at Monique's house matched Fife's DNA. So police were able to gather a ton of evidence in this one search and now had enough evidence where prosecutors were comfortable enough to charge Fife with Anna, Monique, Teresa, and Mary's murders. But were there more cases the police didn't know about? Now, while police and prosecutors were preparing to smash Fife over the head in the courtroom, a young man called a tip line that had been set up. And he said that he thinks Fife murdered his mother. Hazel Scott alone had been beaten and stabbed while home alone by someone who entered her house. But now this murder occurred way back in 1981. How could police even begin to think of a way to link Fife to this crime? Well... It just so happened that Fife was on the same local hockey team as Hazel's son. And 
Hazel had hired Fife to paint her house. And there was blood recovered from the scene. And that blood happened to be a perfect match for Fife. So now, prosecutors brought a fifth murder charge against Fife based off of this new information. On September 21st, 2001, Fife decided to end the circus and he pled guilty to all five counts of murder. He was given the stiffest sentence Canadian law allowed, which is life in prison with no chance of parole for 25 years. Now, after being sentenced, Five started dropping hints that these weren't his only victims. In fact, he suggested there were many other victims, but he refused to tell police anything about these other murders. Now, with this, police departments within driving distance of any city or town Five had ever been known to spend the night in, start going through all their cold cases to see if any murders matched Fife's MO. Reporters and others began questioning if the gaps between Fife's murders truly existed or if there were just that many murders that hadn't been connected to Fife. One such case was Joanne Bodoen's murder in 1991. Her common-law husband allegedly shot to his feet when he saw the police sketch of Fife, claiming that Fife had the exact same eyes as the man who killed Joanne. The murderer stole Joanne's car and many of her valuables, but set the car aflame a few days later. Police also began to suspect Fife may be the perpetrator behind a series of unusually violent rapes that occurred during the 80s by an individual known only as the plumber. This criminal would stalk women in downtown Montreal, follow them to their home or apartment, and then knock on the door. When they answer, he'd say, look, the owner of the apartment building had sent him to fix the plumbing issue. Once inside, he would attack and rape the women. Finally, Fife spoke on the subject of his previous crimes, sort of. He agreed to confess to four more murders in exchange for being moved to a prison that had better mental health facilities. No one knew if he chose to confess to four murders because those were the only unsolved murders left that he had committed, or if he just merely picked that number at random and enjoyed toying with law enforcement. Now, this deal was extremely controversial in Canada. It went crazy. The media hated it. People protested it. They said you should never, ever give in to the demands of someone as twisted as Fife. But the government's response was simple and to me was logical. Number one, we can close four murder cases this way. Number two, He'll still be in an 8x8 concrete cell. It just will be located in a different city. So, despite the public's disgust with the deal, the government went forward with it. So, Fife specifically confessed to raping and killing Suzanne Bernier and Nicole Raymond while on a day pass from the Montreal jail that held him during the late 70s when he was doing things like breaking and entering and creating false marriages. 
He also confessed to murdering Louise Blanc in 1987 and Pauline Laplante in 1989. Police reports note that he explained each murder in clinical detail and he had information about the crime scenes no one else but police had. Police believed all his confessions because he frankly just knew too much about what happened and what the crime scene looked like. Now, despite these additional confessions, Fife never once hinted at a motive for these murders, and police have never been able to put one together. Fife is kind of notable in serial killer lore because he's one of the few who made no attempt to glorify, justify, or publicize his crimes. In fact, he did his best to stay under the radar, arguably making him one of the more intelligent serial killers in history. When people have attempted to interview him to discuss these murders, his only response as to why he committed these murders has been, quote, that's for me to know. So police were able to bring to justice Fife regarding nine of his victims. But it does leave the question of how many more murders and other crimes did Fife commit that he's not fessing up to. He still remains a suspect, in as many as five different unsolved murders, including Joanne that we spoke of earlier. But there's also these huge gaps in time where Fife was a free man and he could have been committing murders. At this moment, though, it seems like we'll never know what he was up to during this free time because he won't talk and police haven't been able to find any other murders or assaults that match Fife's typical way of doing business. When I first learned about William Fife, I was shocked at how little information there was about such a monstrous serial killer. He seems to fuel all the bloodlust we love to have in our true crime cases. I I would think here in the United States, one of the 15 discovery channels we have would be scrambling to make a docu-series on this case. But it seems that we are Fife documentary free for the time being. I've listed the few sources I found for this case in my show notes. But since there are so few, it's hard to really vouch for the accuracy of them. Um, Regardless of nothing else, I think this is at least an interesting story if it's not 100% accurate. But let's go ahead and uh, formally wrap up this installment of Killing, Missing, Hidden. I require a palate cleanser, but this week, Master Joe, my youngest, offers a submission rather than Mr. Eli. So here we are. Let's see if he can tickle our funny bone for the week. What name do you give to a skinny shark? Again, that is, what name should one give to a skinny shark? Why, Finn. Of course. Finn. Okay. That's going to do it from KMH headquarters. Please remember we exist in so many other forms, mainly Facebook, where you can join our private group, and on Instagram, where you can see a bunch of nonsense. So please feel free to interact with us there. We love it. Also remember, we sell a limited selection of merchandise at killingmissinghidden.threadless.com. You can get yourself a nice hoodie or t-shirt 
we hope to expand the collection. But again, my uh, selfish little bout of COVID that kept me in the hospital has, has put a kibosh on a lot of plans moving forward at the speed I wanted them to. I hope you did enjoy this episode. Uh, if so, the greatest compliment you can pay to us is to send us a cashier's check for $250,000. The second best compliment is to tell your friends about us. As I've suggested in the past, just stealthily have them subscribe to us. Then we start popping up in their podcast rotation. And we don't even have to give them a choice about whether or not they want to listen. They'll be curious. They'll listen. They'll love it. And then they'll go out and they'll stealthily sign up their friends. So this is like a ninja pyramid scheme. Who doesn't want to be part of a ninja pyramid scheme? Okay, well, I'm cutting us off there. Goodbye for another week. Everyone, stay healthy. I mean that so much more now than ever. And stay happy. I always mean that. I love y'all. Can't wait to talk to y'all next week. We've got a very special episode next week that you'll love. With that, I'm saying, right out. Thank you for listening to Killing, Missing, Hidden. Make sure to rate, subscribe, and share. Questions? Email us at info at kmhpodcast.com.